We have been walking through the book of Acts together, and uh, it's been quite a journey. I, I have loved this journey. It's been a long uh, journey so far, but uh, I have learned so much um, just as a student of the Word, and I hope that you've learned and grown. I hope that our roots of faith have gone deeper and wider into the gospel. And that's, that's the aim. That's our goal is to just... Um, Put down roots into the gospel of grace. And today we're going we're gonna to go even deeper and further with that truth. Uh, what we've come to understand about the book of Acts is that it's a book of transition from old covenant to new covenant. And uh, you heard a little bit about that this morning. So the, the covenant that Jesus made with us is made through his blood. Uh, when, when we took that cup and when he did that uh, ordinance with his first disciples... He taught them, this is the new covenant of my blood. That's new. It's a new covenant. Our Bibles are divided into an old covenant and a new covenant. Law in the old and grace in the new. So Acts is a unique time in history. What we see is Christ. Put forward as the one in whom we put all of our hope and our trust. And in our text today in Acts chapter 18, we're going to see uh, 18 and 19. A couple of guys that uh, specifically are walking from old covenant faith into new covenant faith in Jesus. So some of what we're going to talk about won't have direct application, but... The broader general ideas we'll dig into together will. So just know this, that people under the old covenant were trusting in God's promise. It was a future faith, a faith in God to deliver on his promises in the future. That's the old covenant. The new covenant is a more, more or less a backward looking faith, not just in God's promise, but in the person of God, in Christ. So our faith is backward looking to the person of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we trust him every day as our savior, as our king. So the book of Acts is walking us through uh, that journey of going from anticipating the savior to acknowledging that Jesus is that savior. With all that in mind, um, and I'm going to hopefully flesh out how that matters to us today. I want you to take your Bibles. I know you just got seated and comfortable. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word? In Acts chapter 18, we'll finish the last of chapter 18 and move into chapter 19 together. Beginning of verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. Competent in the scripture, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace 
had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, Well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need you now to be our teacher to show us what you want us to see in this text. So God, open our eyes and open our heart. Help us to receive the truth today and be changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You can be seated. What I want to talk to you today about, broadly speaking, is this. I want us to to think about how does Jesus change our reality? I love how Russ was leading our thinking earlier. How does Jesus change your reality from law and legalism and do better to grace and fulfillment and he's better? Those are the, that's sort of an overarching truth that I want us to kind of get a hold of. We're gonna flesh that out a little more today. Um, I really just have two, two big ideas that I want to present to you, uh, but I want us to walk through the narrative first, and we'll, on the back end, hit those notes together, okay? So walking through this narrative first, let's just see, who, who is Apollos? Who is he? And what we discover is he's a well-studied Jew. He's an excellent teacher. He is the religious elite. He comes on the scene like an all-star. And he begins teaching in the synagogue and everybody's in awe of this guy. He's from Alexandria. No, he's not a valley cub. Uh, He's from Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, He's from Alexandria, Egypt, which is like where the largest library is. Loads of scholars there. Lots of people who come to that place to talk about philosophy and a lot of big brained type people. That's where he's from. The Bible says he's competent in the scriptures. That means he knew his Bible. He knew the truth, the Old Testament scripture. It says he's instructed in the way of the Lord. That means he's been he's been taught how that truth impacts his life. He's learned um, the religious customs. He's learned how to walk out his faith in God in everyday life. He's fervent in spirit means he's passionate 
the Bible, the word fervent means boiling. So his, his charisma, he's a charismatic kind of a guy, um, fervent in spirit. Then it says he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So this is interesting. He knew the facts about the Savior, about the Messiah. And then Luke gives us this information. But he knew only the baptism of John. So this is, this is a big understanding. And I don't pretend to understand all of this. I'm just going to flesh out what I think I get. So John, the baptism of John. How does that define who Apollos is at this point? If he knew only the baptism of John. Well, John's baptism was a message of repentance. We find that out later in chapter 19. We have a similar issue with those disciples in Ephesus. All they knew was the baptism of John. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. It's a forward-looking baptism awaiting a Messiah that is to come. Well, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John himself said this about his own baptism as it contrasts with Jesus' baptism. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry or untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So there's a distinct difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. John's baptism was one of preparation and Jesus' baptism was one of fulfillment. So what we see uh, is that John baptized with water. It was an outward cleansing, like you would take a shower or a bath. You're washing off the old and you come out clean, you get a fresh start. It was a come out clean and, and try hard to live honorably for God. That was John's message was the Lord is coming. Prepare yourself. Prepare the way of the Lord. Repent of your sin. Obey God. Trust him. The Lord is coming. And it was the right message for the right time. But it was an incomplete gospel. It was a gospel that had yet to be fulfilled. And what we see with Apollos is that he's in the temple, in the synagogue, and he's preaching a message that he's like tracking. He's right on the money. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures and how they're fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is this Messiah we've been waiting for. He is the one we've been waiting for. And then he goes off course because all he knows is the baptism of John. It's possible that Apollos walked right up to the line of the gospel, but he didn't quite make it there. Maybe he taught Jesus as our perfect example for how we live, how we should live. Imagine for a moment he taught maybe something like this. Jesus was humble. You should be humble. Jesus loved the lowly. You should love the lowly. He was kind and willing to help anyone. He would touch the lepers and heal all who were in need, no matter who they were. That's who Jesus was. It's what he did. And we ought to be like him. So Apollo says, this is how we please Yahweh. And it sounds good. It's very close to the gospel. But the reality is, it's not the gospel. It's an incomplete gospel. 
Here's the thing about the almost gospel. Because Apollos is almost there. But the almost gospel produces almost Christians. And that's the idea, that's the the title of this message today is Almost Christian. The almost gospel, which presents Jesus just as our example. Look at Jesus and do like him. That gospel is not full of hope. And let me explain why. Jesus is not mainly our example. He is our substitute. He doesn't just come to live to show us how we can save ourselves. Instead, he came to save us himself. So Jesus didn't just come to set forth the model and then say, go and do likewise. No, he came to say, I am the one in whom you should trust. Put all your hope and all your faith in me. And the beauty of the gospel of grace is that while you and I cannot, he did. That's the message of hope and it's the message of the gospel. And it's the message, I believe, that Priscilla and Aquila, they're listening to Apollo's teaching in the synagogue. They're like, oh, this guy knows our Jesus. Man, he knows our Jesus. He knows our Jesus. Oh, oh, wait a minute. We're off just a little bit. And so the Bible tells us that they go and they take him aside. Now, I was checking that word, those words out in the Greek. And basically, they took him to lunch. I love that. They're like, hey, man, don't just come to our house for Apollo's today, right? After church, we want to have some pot roast on. Why don't you come to the house? They sat and had a meal together. And Priscilla and Aquila, the Bible says, they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now let's just evaluate for a minute. Who are Priscilla and Aquila? They're like everyday people who make tents for a living, right? Paul worked with them for about two years in, in, in a previous city. And, they did life with Paul, like living with him, and preaching with him, and teaching and discipling with him. They had learned a message from Paul that now they're not hearing from Apollos. So they're like, wait a minute. That's, that's almost the gospel, but it's not it. So let's have lunch and sit and let's talk. And they begin to teach him the way of God more accurately is what the Bible says. So what was the message of Paul? What did Paul really want to communicate? Well, Paul, remember, is a Jew who is an astute, law-keeping, law-abiding Jew. He would say of himself in Philippians 3, of, of Hebrews, I'm a Hebrew among Hebrews. Concerning the law, blameless. He's going to talk about his record as a person as far as who he was, how he was stacked up against anybody. He's probably pretty the crop. But you know what he says then? It's all worth it. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Right? So what Paul had learned is he learned that the law, while it's, a, while it's leading us, it's guiding us, it's a teacher about our own sin, our own desperate need for a Savior, it is not a Savior in itself. It's actually the message of condemnation. The law never provides for us saving hope. It just shows us how deeply we need it. And Paul had come to a point where he's now preaching a gospel of grace. Grace. I want you to listen to what Paul says. Well, first, let's just look at, at our context, okay? 
In Acts chapter 18, look at verse 13. Just take your eyes off the page to Acts 18, verse 13. Paul had gotten in trouble for preaching, and he was before Galileo on trial. And listen to the accusation. It says, this man is persuading people to worship God, how? Contrary to the law. I think Paul would probably stand before him and go, guilty. Guilty. I'm preaching a gospel that says Christ fulfilled the law. And there is now a righteousness apart from the law. Look at what he's going to say in Romans. I'll just give you three or two little passages. Romans 3.21 in particular. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is no distinction. So the gospel of grace says this. doesn't matter who you are. We're all broken. The law tells us that. But now there's a righteousness apart from the law. And how, how are we called righteous before God? Through faith in Jesus Christ. He's not our example. He's our substitute. Paul had a big heart for the Jews who had a particular propensity Toward trusting in the law. You know, it was how they were raised, how they were grown. He had a huge heart for Jews because he was a Jew, right? And he writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. I want you to listen to these words. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, talking about Israel, is that they may be saved. They, they heard an almost gospel, but not the gospel of grace. That they may be saved. Listen, for I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Amen. Isn't that good news? Yeah. That's the good news of the gospel of grace. And Paul is sort of leading the charge through the book of Acts of this transition from try harder, try harder, do better, do better, do better into no, 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 no. It's not about religion anymore. That was a good guide, but it got us to this point. And now we have the one who has come. We don't look forward to a promise anymore. We look back to the person of Jesus. And he's the great law keeper. He didn't come just as a law keeper to be an example for us. No, he came to be our substitute. And we put our whole faith in this man. Because he lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserved to die. And he rose again to give us a hope that we desperately need. This is the beauty of the gospel. He's not mainly our example. He's our substitute. So Priscilla and Aquila hear him teach and they take him aside. They lovingly guide him into the true gospel. And we see that Apollos 
must have received their message because not long after that, he's so fired up. He's like, I gotta take this message to Achaia. I gotta tell those people of the gospel of grace. And the brothers write letters. They're like, yes, we're gonna send you to preach this gospel. They send him on and he goes and the Bible tells us, I love what it says in Acts 18 at the end of the text. Look at these words. He greatly helped those who through grace believed. Isn't that beautiful? And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing that the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Pause for just a moment. Um, I love our celebrated recovery ministry. I love it. I love the way these guys lead. And I love um, the honesty that you experience at CR. Um, so Celebrate Recovery is for folks struggling with anything. We do have a lot of people who come who, who uh, struggle with addiction. Uh, Thursday night, I met a young man. I've uh, been praying for him ever since. But um, they were in, in here for a large group. And uh, he just came out and was very anxious, tears in his eyes. And I'm cleaning up in the cafe for a minute. And he just came to the cafe there and said, um, hey, uh, you have some water? I gave you some water. And then we started just talking. I said, what's going on? And he said, man, I just, I feel like such a failure. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, I mean, I'm, I've been sober for four years and I screwed up. And he just throws his hands up and tears are streaming down his face and he just feels this weight of guilt and weight of shame. And I was like, man, I just let him talk for a minute. I think that's what he needed, just to talk. I just listened and tried to comfort. And I love the honesty because there's, a, there's something about honesty that sort of is an open door for rescue. Do you agree? Yes. I want to encourage you, like, put, put down the, the, pretend, the pretending. Stop. It'll keep you in trouble. But he's just honest, you know? And the Lord said... Uh, you need to tell him about Apollos. And I didn't preach a sermon, but here's what I told him. I said, can I tell you that there's a way to be near to God that doesn't depend on you? That you can be brought near by the blood of Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. You can be brought near by the blood of Jesus. That it's not what you do. It's what he has done. I said, I'm, I'm talking to you about grace. Do you know about grace? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds great. I think I, I, think I understand grace. And he was like, uh, but don't you think I have to do something at some point? I was like, well, let's not get the cart before the horse. You see, grace is the cart. Our grace is the horse. And it pulls our joyful obedience along. But you don't obey your way into grace. Really being immersed in the person of Jesus. That's what baptism is. To be immersed. Put your whole confidence in Him. Your whole confidence in His person. How He lived. How He died. Why He died. That He rose again. To put your whole confidence in Christ will change your life. It will change how you live. 
But if you worry about the cart, you miss the horse. Grace will transform your life. And people say, you can't just preach grace. Like you, you have to tell people how to, how to do right. And I said, look at Jesus. We look at Him. He rescues. He rescues us from our religion. Do you believe that? Listen, religion says, do better. And grace, the gospel of grace, says done. So Apollos teaches us a lot about being rescued from our religion. We turn the page to the dirty dozen now. (laughs) That's what I've been calling them all week, the dirty dozen. Uh, These 12 guys in Ephesus that they're not the religious elite like Apollos was. They're more like religiously ignorant. And I mean that in a good way. Like, I don't mean that they're dumb. I just mean they didn't know. They just didn't know any better. And I think there's a lot of people like that, that we pretend we know, but we just don't know. You know? And so these guys, we, we see that Paul comes in and he meets them and they say they're disciples and, and he's sort of observing their way of life. And he's like, I, I don't really see the the impact of the Holy Spirit. Because you know, when the Holy Spirit comes in you, He changes you, right? So Paul asks them a really unusual question. I think I've probably never asked anybody this question before. But Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's a very interesting question. And there's been a lot of um, bad, bad theology built on this passage. But what Paul is essentially driving at is, is the Holy Spirit really controlling your life? And he's, he's linking belief with the Holy Spirit. Like when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. Paul teaches us that through the rest of the New Testament. So he's asking them about their belief by asking them whether they have the Holy Spirit. Well, then they, they say, we've, we've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. We don't, we don't know what you're talking about. And so Paul says, okay, well, you said you're a disciple. So into what were you baptized? Now, this is another interesting question because in our culture, we don't have a huge emphasis on baptism. We probably should put more weight on it, honestly. But Paul is teaching that us, we should learn that baptism is a declaration of your confidence. It's you saying, I'm putting all of my hope, all of my faith, In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism represents. Well, so he says, well, into what were you baptized? And by that question, he means, what exactly is your hope in as a disciple? And they say back to him, well, into John's baptism. We were baptized into John's baptism. And so then Paul does some teaching about how that baptism is incomplete. It was good. It was a good guide. It led us to this point. John uh, gave a baptism of repentance. And he said, look for the one who's greater than me. Look, the one, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Look to him. And Jesus, and Paul says, that one is Jesus. And in the text, maybe there's more of the conversation. You know, Luke's given us a good summary here. Maybe he talked a little more. I would like to think he did explain who Christ is, how he lived, why he died in our place. 
that he rose from the dead. And these men, the dirty dozen, they believe in Jesus. They believe in the grace of Jesus. They're redeemed and rescued from this religious do-better mentality. Shortly after that, Paul uh, lays hands on them. Well, they, he baptizes them first in the name of Jesus. Then he lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit comes in power like it's a miraculous thing that happens. The Holy Spirit comes on them. They begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. And it's a big, powerful moment. And many people have said, well, why? Like that hasn't happened every time. People believe and receive the Spirit. That hasn't happened every time. So why does that happen like that here? And um, I don't know, but I would suggest this idea. So this is the fourth time in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit comes on people with those signs in, in, in speaking in tongues and prophecy. And for me, it, it harkens back to what Jesus said initially in the book In chapter one, he told his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses where in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. So those four places. Now, check it out. Everywhere. I love our kids. Everywhere. Everywhere that the Holy Spirit comes on people in power. Where did it happen? Acts two, Jerusalem. Acts 10. Cornelius in Judea. Acts 8, the Samaritans, Samaria. And now Acts 19, we're in Ephesus, which is the, the center of the, the hub of the world where like New York or London is today, where the world had come to Ephesus. And so here we have to the ends of the earth. My thinking is that this moment is when the, the Holy Spirit of God is saying, yes, I'm doing what I set out to do. Now, I want us to walk back and I just want to all that to quickly walk through the outline I gave you. So that was introduction. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not to introduction. Um, let me just give you an outline you can hold on to. OK. Number one, Jesus rescues from religion. Jesus rescues from religion. Here's what I mean. Apollos, he declared an almost gospel. Almost gospel. And the danger of the almost gospel is that it produces almost Christians. Christians who think, well, Jesus is the way if I just try my hardest to do what he did, I'll be okay. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is the way. He's not not the model or the example for the way. He did come to provide us an example, but he's first our substitute. So they bring him aside, give him clarity in the gospel of grace, and he's rescued from religion. Then we meet the dirty dozen. These guys evidently have no fruit of the spirit. So Paul questions them about their belief in Jesus. They come to find out they don't know who the spirit is, and they didn't know that Jesus was the one that John had taught about. So he leads them to put their faith in Jesus and they too are rescued from religion. That in mind, one thing I want you to see through this text that I think is beautiful and I hope you will leave here 
with the passion and desire to walk this out. Second thing, rescued people help rescue people. This is one of the reasons I love Celebrate Recovery, right? Because these guys stand up here and say, my name is, and here's how Christ has rescued me. And then we spend the next bit of time saying, and Christ can rescue you. That's, that's what that ministry is all about. And really, that's what life as a believer should be all about. So rescued people help to rescue people. Do you, are you seeing in the text where that happens? Look, Priscilla and Aquila. They're Jews also. Remember, they were exiled from Rome. They met up with Paul, ended up being tent makers, and um, they welcomed him into their home. But they had been impacted by his message. They had been rescued by the gospel of grace. And they're now able to hear Apollos take him to lunch and say, man, let me tell you, you are almost there. But here's the beautiful truth of the gospel. It's not about what you can do. It's about what Jesus has done. That rescues. It rescues us. So they were rescued and they rescued others. Apollos then, having received that truth, he's like, I got to go tell people. So they send him off with letters and he goes helping rescue people. And then the one who's kind of behind all of this has been the Apostle Paul, the man who was rescued on the road to Damascus. He thought he was doing the right thing for God by going and persecuting these followers of the way of Jesus. Well, Jesus himself rescued Paul by the gospel of grace. Paul ends up helping guide these dirty dozen to become believers. And these are the men, most likely, who are the founders of the church in Ephesus. I say all that and just want to wrap things up this morning this way. The scripture encourages us to do self-examination. In Corinthians, Paul writes and he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Is your confidence truly in Christ? Or is it in you? And some of us, we need to make that change from trusting in ourselves, trying harder. This, this whole do better um, hamster wheel It's time to get off of that and trust in Christ. But I'd say this, even to the believer today, like not just talking about a one time transaction where, oh, well, you know, there was that time I trusted in Jesus. I'm all good. Let me tell you, I need the gospel of grace today. I need to be reminded that my hope rests in Jesus and that I don't live my life to perform for people. And whether you like me or not determines who I am. I am who I am because Christ redeemed and rescued me. And if you're in Christ, that's the beauty of the gospel. Is it not only saves you, it sustains you. So today, Christian, put your hope in Jesus. Rest in Him. It's one of our tenets out here to rest in hope. A hope that anchors your soul is the only hope Jesus has to offer. So examine yourselves, the Bible says. Consider where, whether you really are in the faith. I, I'm not... I don't want you to be deceived. 
And maybe you up to this point have believed an almost gospel. And just as Russ encouraged you earlier, that could stop today. And you can believe in the complete gospel of grace, Jesus, today. And be rescued from your sin and part of his family.